like to tell folks, I think when they're driving through the Columbia River Gorge and they see, you know, this lonely barge tow out in the river, it doesn't look like it's holding that much cargo. But one four barge tow for our river system holds about the same amount of cargo as 538 semi-trucks or one and a half unit trains. So that's a lot of product that would otherwise be going on our roads and our rails. Welcome back to DAM, the official podcast of Northwest Hydropower. I'm your host, Austin Rohr, and I manage all things communications here at Northwest River Partners. As the likely title of this podcast states, the show must go on. Our work at this organization never really ends, and we want to keep following the path we've been on to see to it that hydropower is supported and recognized as the cornerstone of clean energy in the Northwest. That's why today, I'm very excited for the DAM audience to get to hear from our interim executive director, Heather Stebbings. She has been a longtime friend to River Partners thanks to her work at the Pacific Northwest Waterways Association, and she understands the challenges in work as well as anyone. You'll get to hear all about that in a minute, but it's also her second official day on the job, so welcome to Northwest River Partners and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Austin. Appreciate being here. Our usual approach here would be like to start off with talking about, you know, kind of what your role is and what you do and also kind of getting into the organization you're at. But I think we've already kind of covered that ground. So instead, maybe we can kick off with maybe your background and how you found yourself in the interim role that you're at now. Sure. So um, I've actually been uh, working with River Partners for a really long time. So um, I started back in 2006 at the Pacific Northwest Waterways Association. I started doing communications. And so even back then, I was th- I'm just thinking about this now, but I served on the River Partners Communications Committee for, for quite some time. Um, I was at PNWA uh, through 2019 and kind of worked my way up in the organization and I was the government relations director for the last five years. So really handling and leading a lot of the advocacy work that the organization was doing. And for those that aren't familiar with PNWA, it's a trade association similar to River Partners, but um, they really focus on maritime and navigation uh, work and making sure the Corps of Engineers has enough funding and that the policies are in place to make sure we can operate and uh, maintain our waterways here in the Northwest. And of course, the intersection there is with the dams um, on the Columbia and Snake Rivers. So after um, I was at PNWA, I went and worked at the Port of Vancouver, USA, doing communications work there. Then I handled um, government affairs for Shaver Transportation, one of the tug and barge lines that utilizes the river system. Um, And then the last couple of years, I was the executive director of PNWA. Um, And so a big portion of the work that I did at PNWA over the last couple of years was focused on the Lower Snake River dams and the mediation. So um, PNWA is also engaged in the uh, litigation uh, portion of of the uh, Columbia River System operations. So that's how I ended up here. Absolutely. And and we will talk a little bit more about uh, that as much as we can later on. But, um, you know, Getting to know a little bit more about you as well, how did you kind of first get introduced to this work, maybe going back to like 2006 or, I mean, was there something about it that caught your interest in it? You know, I just got lucky, actually. So in college, I studied math, so something totally different than communications and and government affairs. 
Um, but after college, I moved out to the Northwest from Connecticut, and I got a couple of like lower level communications jobs, and I really enjoyed doing that. I moved back to uh, Maine, Portland, Maine, Portland of Portland. Um, and I worked at a television station there, so got a little bit more immersed in the communications world. And when I moved back out to Portland, Oregon, uh, I found myself applying for the PNWA job. And I was really lucky. I had no maritime um, experience at the time. And I was really lucky I had a boss uh, that just really, I, I was young and motivated and he really took that and kind of ran with it. He let me participate in all of his meetings and um, really took me under his wing and kind of showed me the world of, of nonprofits, but also government affairs and maritime work. So um, it just became something I was really interested in. And over the last almost 20 years, it's just evolved even further. Absolutely. I actually, so this year for the for the first time ever, I went on a vacation this summer to Maine. You did? Um, I did. And I, I went up to, um, oh, I can't even think of the name of it now. It was like, I think, Phippsburg or something like that. Okay. It was just a little tiny town on like one of those peninsulas. Um, but it was probably about a half hour northeast of Portland. And I mean, there's definitely some some similarities between here in the Northwest, or I mean, there in the Northwest, really. But uh, I, I'd imagine, like, especially when it comes to some of the river transportation stuff and whatnot. I mean, there's also a lot of differences for sure. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, there's just coastal, obviously, navigation there. Um, huge cruising industry and mm-hmm. huge fishing community. Um, and out here, we have all the inland inland transportation, which is something that. Um, I've gotten really sort of immersed in and interested in just in terms of all of the different uh, pieces that are involved in making sure that we can get our goods to and from market um, from all the way inland to the global marketplace. Yeah, I mean, it's really, um, it's unique, obviously. It's one of the things that we kind of tout. And actually, um, that's something that I, I wanted to get into as well. So last summer, we both spoke at the U.S. Wheat summer board meeting and I ended up learning like a ton from your presentation because you presented before me and I've brought that up like several times now since then Um, one of the more interesting facts was around the transport of agricultural goods out of say the Midwest that come all the way into our own inland ports just because of our unique inland transportation and barging system um, and I brought a little bit of this up with Scott Corbett at the Port of Lewiston when I oh, did yeah. the podcast with him. But um, maybe you could like kind of touch on some of that stuff as well and, and tell me more about that. Sure. We have a really integrated transportation network on the Columbia Snake River system. So we are really lucky that we have you know really good highway networks. Um, we have really good rail networks that bring our goods out here. But then we also have uh, the combination of inland barging transportation and deep water ports. So um, we, uh, for barging purposes, you know, we have about 365 miles worth of barge network, 14 foot deep for the barges to be able to get up there. They go through all eight navigation locks from the Portland, Vancouver area all the way up to Lewiston, Idaho. And a lot of the barged product is, at least coming downriver for out to the global market, is Oregon, Washington, and Idaho wheat. That's primarily what we're moving. Um, And when it makes its way down to the lower Columbia, it's loaded on really deep draft vessels. 
um, and then ship to the global marketplace. So we also have rail that comes down to the lower river. So they work together, really. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's completely integrated. Um, and so the rail network can reach as far as the Midwest, and it kind of supplements what we can bring down on, on barge. Yeah, it's one of the things that I think maybe sometimes people, I wouldn't say that they misunderstand or, or confuse or anything like that, but it's sort of similar in the way that when we try and talk about maybe the differences between wind and solar, those intermittent resources, and then hydropower, um, you know, we're not saying that wind and solar are bad. We're just talking about some of the comparisons, the the drawbacks, where they're similar, where they're different. And I think that the uh, the thing that sometimes happens with like the rail situation is uh, we tout the benefits of the river transportation and the barging so much, but that's not to say that the rail cars and the semi trucks and all that are bad, right? No, we we need all of the modes working together. So, uh, you know, the the rail network is extremely important. It's how our goods get from the central U.S. out to the coast to be able to move um, out from from our country. So, um, what happens is we. It is a really tricky subject because we're not saying one is better than the other. We're saying we need all of them. They work together. They complement each other in terms of the amount that can move. So, you know, rail doesn't have all of the capacity that we need to move all the product that we move on our inland transportation system. And in terms of complementing, it also also takes multiple, multiple modes to keep our costs low. Because if you only have one way to move cargo, then you're held captive by that way to move cargo. They can charge whatever they want and almost make us uncompetitive in terms of how we move move our goods. So we need barging there, just like we need rail there, there to be able to um, sort of keep the market in check. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And and I think, you know, again, it's like, it's so similar to the, the energy resource model or comparison because it's like you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket certainly um and that's whether that's the resource or whether that's uh you know where you're getting the resource from right i mean we don't all uh we don't all want to have just one big utility that (laughs) gives us all of our energy here in the exactly in the northwest and we've seen that with rail too where rail is really the big guy right it's an extremely large network um that we have in the u.s and we we had some really big challenges over the last couple of years with the uh, capacity on the rail system, but also with the availability of rail cars. Um, it, it just wasn't there to meet the needs that our farmers and others relied upon. And so it creates this system where, okay, if one thing's not working as we need it to, then we have something else to fall back on. Absolutely. And I think, you know, again, as we as we often talk about, uh, you know, it always comes back to kind of the, the Lower Snake River Dam issue. And it's like, you know, it, it really speaks to how vital that aspect of their, you know, of their services is, right? I mean, there's obviously the energy, there's a, a multitude of services they provide, but uh, that transportation piece is a big one, and it's a, a really hard one to work around as far as, like, what do you do as an alternative? Exactly. I, I always like to tell folks, I think when they're driving through the Columbia River Gorge and they see, you know, this lonely barge tow out in the river, it doesn't look like it's holding that much cargo. But 
One four barge tow for our river system holds about the same amount of cargo as 538 semi-trucks or one and a half unit trains. So that's a lot of product that would otherwise be going on our roads and our rails. And then we think about barging and we think, okay, this is the most environmentally friendly way to move cargo. It has the lowest amount of emissions. And so not only would you be putting that cargo on our roads and our rails, having that congestion, um, but you'd also have the increased uh, emissions related to that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, you know, if if people are uh, maybe having a hard time visualizing the additional congestion or the, uh, you know, the emissions piece of it or whatever, the, the one I always like to go back to is uh, just drive some of those roads out there and, you know, think about the condition of them and then consider the astronomical increase in traffic of heavy trucks and what that might do to the condition of those roads. And then, you know, obviously that means more construction, which means more traffic, more delays. So, I mean, you know, whenever, whenever it's like trying to think about it in real world terms, like I think we can all universally agree that, you know, potholes and orange cones are not our favorite thing. (laughs) No, exactly. And a lot of the roads that we have in place now, especially out in Eastern Washington, where when we're thinking about what would happen if the dams were breached and we had to replace some of that transportation, they just, they're, they're country roads. They don't have the yeah. capability to handle the immense amount of traffic that we would need to really get our goods to market in an efficient manner. Absolutely. So thinking about, you know, kind of in terms of the, the time that you've had with this issue, how has the work around that Lower Snake River Dam and kind of the whole breaching topic evolved and, and changed during that time? You know... I think it's sort of twofold. I think that the chatter sort of around the Snake River Dams has certainly gotten bigger in the Northwest. We hear about it a lot more. Um, you know, we heard about it with, related to the Orca, or there are all these other venues where it seems to be being brought into the discussion. But I would say that's that's where I've seen the change. It's gotten a little bit louder here in the Northwest. but. To me, when it comes to the Lower Snake River dams, the conversation that really matters is the conversation with Congress. And that hasn't changed. So for me, when I'm going back and forth to DC and I'm talking to folks back there, our members of Congress and the US Congress as a whole really see the value of our our hydropower system, our navigation, our inland navigation system, the irrigation benefits that are provided Um, And they continue to support that transportation and and just the Columbia River Systems Operation Network. So for me, there are things that have changed in terms of the the loudness of what we're hearing out here in the region. But where the decisions matter in Congress, I really haven't seen a lot of change. That brings up a really interesting question that comes to mind. When it comes to addressing Congress about the issue, there's the... There's the Northwest representatives, right? You know, the people that would certainly be familiar with the the issues in their own backyard. But what are some of the ways that you find you can kind of successfully communicate this stuff to Congress people from outside of our area who might not be familiar with the dams or the the transportation or, um, I mean, even just the the Northwest as a whole, right? Maybe they, they haven't really been out here. Right. 
Um, for the transportation piece, you know, we really talk about the value that it provides to our uh, to our inland farmers and to the folks that are growing food out there, to the folks that need to get their goods to market in an efficient manner, um, and the economic value that provides for the. Uh, hydroelectric portion of that, you know, we really focus on the fact that we have the ability to respond really quickly with our hydro system. We have low cost, um, you know, efficient power here in the Northwest, no uh, zero emissions related to that. So I think people really understand the value that hydropower provides. We see that uh, across the board. Um, I think where it gets a little bit um, you know, where folks have questions sometimes is reg with regard to the fish, of course. And then we talk about the value of, you know, we, we see the needs to always be doing better by the fish. We want to provide more funding. Um, we want to be doing habitat imp improvements. We want to be doing predatory work. Um, we want to do all the things that we can to benefit our fish, but we're making significant investments in the system to make sure that our juveniles uh, more and more can get out through the river system and that we have um, increased returns coming back. And when folks around the world come to, you know, our docks and our dams here on, on the Columbia Snake, they look at it and they're like, whoa, this is state-of-the-art fish facilities. You're investing millions of dollars in these. How can we replicate this elsewhere? I mean, we see fish passage being added even here in our region. Look at Howard Hansen Dam. Millions and millions of dollars are being invested by the federal government to increase fish passage at that project. Um, and so folks see the value in, in investing in the fish side as well. I think that's one of the bigger, if not one of the biggest misconceptions about our work and, and what we do is that they see you know, all of the sort of the the pro-hydro organizations as being somehow anti-fish. And, you know, whether you're talking about um, the the work, the advocacy, the the searching for that funding and those opportunities, or, I mean, even just the, the original name of this organization being like the, you know, the smart, I don't remember all the words, the, the uh, Coalition for Smart Salmon Recovery, I think is what it was. Um, you know, the, the salmon issue really is a big portion of what we do as well. And, you know, even recently with uh, River Partners, you know, we've gotten on board and trying to partner with the Upper Columbia United Tribes on reintroduction above Chief Joe and Grand Coulee, uh, which is another, you know, huge opportunity to get salmon up there and, you know, really hopefully establish a, a strong run of fish out of that region for, you know, decades to come. Um, but yeah, I mean, people people so often are like, you guys hate the fish. And it's like, no, I, I love the fish. I mean, not even as a you know person in this role at this organization, but just as a, a person in general, like my interest in this really came from my enthusiasm about salmon naturally and, and kind of wanting to understand more what the challenges are and, you know, where where there's kind of more myth and where there's more fact as far as where we can most effectively help the species with recovery and, and you know having a sustainable population. I think I think you're totally right. I think for people outside of the issue it feels really black and white, but it's real a really nuanced issue. And what I always try to help folks understand is that 
we live here, <laughs> we work here, we have our families here and the communities in the Northwest. We, we recognize the cultural significance of salmon. We want there to be more salmon here in the region and we wanna be a partner in making that happen. Um, one of our sort of irrigator friends, I heard him once say, you know, we're farmers, we're not anti-fish, we're not anti-environment, we need clean water, we need clean soil, we need the same things, you know, in some capacity that the fish need to survive. Um, so we want to keep doing better too, and we're looking for those areas where we can partner with others to make that happen. For me, um, especially when I was at uh, the Pacific Northwest Waterways Association, I would always say, we support pretty much every aspect of fish recovery except for breaching the Lower Snake River dams. We don't feel like that makes sense. Um, and, but, but we're certainly coming to the table to say, where can we lend our voice? Where can we advocate for money? Where can we you know, link arms and bring resources back to the Northwest so that we can do better uh, for the salmon and for the communities that rely upon them? Certainly. And, you know, the the thing is, too, I, I mean, the, the whole concept of, like, can the dams coexist with salmon, uh, especially the Lower Snake River dams, you know, when it comes to the work that, that we do, so much of it is being informed by the people who actually really study those fish. And so, you know, I, I think just for, like, example here, you know, we have a an entire biology committee. Right. And a lot of them are fish biologists from different utilities around the region or, you know, in some way or another, they're involved in kind of the, the ongoing efforts with habitat, hatcheries and so on. You know, those people, they certainly care about the fish. Right. I mean, I, I think most of them probably are people who uh, they're passionate about biology. They're passionate about the species a lot of them are passionate about fishing, right? So they're, you know, not coming from like this uh, maybe anti-recreation background or anything like that where, you know, um, they'd be at odds with the, the other people that love to go fishing in any capacity. I mean, they just, they really believe in what they do and they have studied it extensively enough to feel confident in saying that they don't see dam breaching as a necessary action, right? Yeah, exactly. I've, I've heard some of the utility folks talk about some of the really good news stories and um, the good stories that they've invested money and time on the ground and the increases in fish runs that they've seen just at some of their own individual projects. And then partnering with some of the federal agencies like the Corps of Engineers who you know operate and maintain the dams uh, if you listen to their biologists talk about their projects, they're proud of what they do. Um, they believe in the work that they're doing. They believe in the fish passage facilities that they have and the improvements that they're working to, you know, continuing to work to make. So it's really inspiring to talk to people like that, um, not just because they do, they do feel maybe um, the same as we do about fish and dance can coexist, but they're doing something they really believe in and they feel really passionate about. And um, it's always nice to talk to people that are that are doing those sorts of things that they feel proud about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the more interesting kind of anecdotes I'll share is when I 
had my previous job before this one, uh, and I was working in a magazine doing you know totally different work. But one of the questions that I remember being asked during the interview process was, you know, do you have kind of thick skin, right? Like, can you handle? Basically, the question was like, you know, if you're going to be interviewing, um, you know, say one of these top level athletes, and they, you know, they're not nice to you or they blow you off or whatever. Uh, you know, like, can you handle that? Or are you going to take that personally? I was like, no, I can handle that. And for, you know, for the most part, like I really never did have a problem. Like there are times where you kind of, you know, bump up against people the wrong way or whatever. Right. And they're not super excited about talking to you and you just kind of go, you know, Hey, whatever it is, what it is like, you know, it's all, it's all professional stuff. Uh, I would say similarly being in this current role when it comes to communicating and, seeing the activity on our social media um, initially you know we would get a lot of comments and different things where I'd be like I I don't really care right you know like I might disagree with this person but yeah it is what it is and now having been here for a few years I find more that I have to kind of pull myself back because I'm like you know reading some of this stuff where people say um, fish ladders don't work hatcheries don't work these things are are bad and all that and I'm like you know I've worked with all the people who have put so much of their livelihood behind designing making you know making sure that these things do work and I'm like you know it's not only just kind of like a disagreement but I'm like it's kind of insulting (laughs) to the to the people who really you know have put in all that hard work and done something that I think is successful and and you know you're kind of spreading like this you know, misinformation that yeah. really throws their work under the bus. Yeah. Uh, so I have to, yeah, I have to be like very <laughs> controlled and like thinking about like, okay, it's fine. Like it's not a big deal, but. <laughs> yeah, um, try not to take it personally. But at the same time, it is, it's definitely frustrating when yeah. you hear kind of lies being thrown around. Mm-hmm. Um, and a few years ago, I was speaking at a conference and there were a bunch of Corps of Engineers people there. And there was a woman that was really involved in the development of the CRSO EIS. And I, you know, I was talking to her about some of the issues we were working on related to it. And she was like, it's just really disheartening for people to be against that product. Like we put our heart and soul into that. We believed in the work that we were doing and we believe in the outcome that happened and it's just being ripped apart. You know, yeah. and so um, I try to think about that, like put put myself in the position of others. I try to do that even with the, you know, the folks that don't necessarily agree with us on a lot of things. Um, you know, where are they coming from? And we're all people. We all believe in something. And to just try to have some empathy for each other. I feel like social media is a real. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's, it's really tough. bad for that. Um, and. There's just a lot of sort of trolls and and people just kind of feel like they can put whatever they want to put out there without any consideration for other folks. So I try to really lead with kindness. But you're right. It's hard not to take things personally sometimes. And it's also hard not to get worked up when you see, you know, lies being spread. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, just I think it's it's not a challenge that's necessarily unique to our work, certainly. But um, as you said, it's like, you know, if we're going to get anywhere with the the challenges that we're up against uh and that's you know all of the challenges right that's the salmon and the you know the energy issues and 
continuing to offer good transportation to the region. Like all of these things require us to be able to work together. And when there's a, a lack of empathy and that, you know, there's accusations being thrown around and different things, it's like, it really doesn't help with the process, you know, so. No, we're all trying, for the most part, I feel like people are inherently good. We're all trying to do good work. Um, we may come from different corners on things, but we are all trying to get to the same end result for the most part. You yeah. Know, we're trying yeah. to get more salmon out here. We're trying to, you know, uh, reduce our greenhouse gases. We're trying to invest in our, you know, transportation equipment so we can be cleaner and greener. Um, we're all trying to get to a good place. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. On that note, too, of, you know, kind of working closely together, PNWA and River Partners have always traditionally worked very closely together. As far as some of that overlap goes, you know, there's a lot that we have in terms of membership, uh, support for agricultural communities, river transportation, be that, you know, cruising or barging, really. But coming from that background, are there things you're excited to engage in more with the public power aspect of being at this organization? I am. Public power is really, is a little bit of an enigma to me sometimes because it's really complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so understanding the transportation that, or the transmission network better, understanding, um, you know, the relationships with EPA and DOE in more depth, understanding the relationships with tribal partners and the Fish and Wildlife Program. So those are all things I'm really looking forward to kind of dive into because I followed them peripherally and I understand them um, at some level, but I'd really like to get a bit more in the weeds. Yeah, yeah. It's, there is a, a ton of diversity within it. You know, just looking at our, our list of members and thinking about not only, you know, where they are, who they are, uh, the communities that they're serving, but then also understanding the relationships between all of them. And as you mentioned, you know, there's the relationships with outside entities, outside stakeholders, um, you know, even even tying back to sort of that agricultural side of it. It's like, you know, some of our members are hugely connected to the farms, right? And so, you know, there's questions about, hey, this is, you know, the energy situation during a heat wave, and we need to be in touch with all of our farmers to make sure they understand the, the situation we're in and what they might be, you know, having to prepare for if something were to go sideways. I mean, there's a lot of interconnectedness with all of it. Obviously, I mean, you know, the, it makes sense, right? The energy is kind of tied into all of our lives in some way or another every day. Um, but yeah, but you don't it's, always think about it because you're yeah. just so used to, you know, flipping the switch and the lights go on. Um, so yeah, so that interconnectedness is kind of one of the things I'm, I'm most interested in understanding a bit better. Definitely. I, I was just having a conversation with a, a good friend recently who was, uh, long story short, he is not a public power customer and he got a, a rate increase notification in the mail and so he was kind of a little bit worked up like you know really this you know they're raising it this much and all that and then he starts kind of asking me about how thick how this stuff works because of the work that i do here and so we start talking about it and you know explaining to him you know kind of the high level like way that all of the different things work to make sure that the lights come on when you flip the switch and he's like so all this stuff is going on like 
all the time, like in the background, you know, and I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, like yeah. there's there's always somebody with their kind of finger on the pulse to make sure that everything's working the way it's supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. It's very similar to what I what I'm used to, which is the transportation network. Mm-hmm. You know, you you don't even think about how, you know, you buy your television at the grocery store or at Fred Meyer or yeah. Target. Um, how your goods are getting here. You know, you just go to the store and you buy it and then you go home and use it. Um, it's really similar to that aspect of the, um, the utility world where you just flip the switch and it's on. You don't really have to think about how it got there. It's pretty It's pretty crazy to think about. Like, for example, the television, probably the amount of, you know, if you were to, like, take apart all the components of it, like the amount of different places in the world that all that stuff has come from and then been assembled in some way then moved to another place to be further assembled like by the time it ends up in your living room um like your your tv's been around the globe pretty much so um i guess more broadly speaking what are some of the challenges and opportunities of being in the executive director position at this type of organization that people might not be aware of Hmm, that's a good question um, you know, I think, I think, lead, you know, leading an organization is a really important role. My role here is a little bit different because I'm interim, so it's just for a few months. Um, but I think I look at my role over the next several months as just providing that consistency for River Partners. I'm definitely a little bit different than Kurt. Um, well, obviously I'm different than Kurt, but um, a little bit different in my area of focus. But we've both been working you know day in day out day out on on this mediation and so um providing not only that consistency but consistency with the board in terms of um uh just having had that experience in that type of leadership role before so i look at my role a little different than i look at like a long-term executive director where you're really setting the vision for the for the association um you're thinking about you know, strategy today, but also five years down the line, 10 years down the line, um, and maintaining your membership, growing your membership, and making sure that River Partners continues to have a strong voice in the region. So um, I look at those as sort of two different roles. Mine's sort of the short-term gig, um, mm-hmm. and so I can focus on really providing that consistency while the board can focus on uh, finding the next leader for, for um, Northwest River Partners. So let me, let me ask as well, like, when you describe sort of setting a vision and, and you know coming up with different strategies for leading an organization, some people might hear that and say like, okay, so you know, let's say the you know the goal here is to increase awareness about hydropower. Um, you would go like, okay, what do you what do you do with that, <laughs> right? Or like, what do you mean by that? Um, so, as far as kind of like taking more of that broad. In taking a broad vision for something and then actually putting it into practice. Um, again, you know, obviously talking more at a high level, like, you know, without getting too much into specific examples. Um, how would you describe some of the ways that you might go about doing that? Like, how does somebody um, kind of really accomplish that work of being strategic and driving the vision of an organization yeah i think you really do need to have a good handle on um your membership 
the needs of your membership, not only today, but what's coming down the pike. What are the challenges that your membership is going to face? Um, and really keeping your finger on the pulse of that needs of those needs while you're looking for opportunities to partner, to grow, to get your message out. So it, it kind of shifts, I guess, year after year um, with different technologies and um, different things like that. But in terms of big picture, where you're looking to maintain your membership, provide value for your membership, and then um, really see I, I really think the challenges piece for me is where I see the biggest area to harness some of the value because you look at down the line, whether it's funding challenges or um, you know policy related, those are all things that take a long time to get done. So you kind of want to stay ahead of the curve on those challenges. So it's really understanding the on the ground work that's happening at your member level and bringing that kind of within to the staff level here at the association. Yeah, uh, I think that that's a really good description because it it does sort of speak to, I think something that we often communicate here, which is you know trying to trying to say we're a member driven organization. Uh, well, what does that really mean? And I, I think that that definitely kind of answers what that means. I think as associations, we you know associations are typically you know they have a smaller staff. And so I think it can get really easy. River Partners has been amazing at not doing this. Um, Kurt has been really good about just developing this really big momentum for the organization, which has been awesome to watch from afar. Um, but I think associations in general, you can be doing the work for so, for so long and you have a small staff, so sometimes it's hard to get really creative because you're just trying to get the day-to-day stuff done. Um, but you it, it, you can sort of get in the groove and forget to have the vision. And so um, really staying focused on that long-term vision, I think, is helpful um, for an executive director. Yeah, absolutely. And something, too, that I, I think plays into that as well, maybe on the other side of it, is there's a lot of challenge that comes up when you are trying to focus on the longer-term vision and then there's uh, curveballs that get thrown our way with, um, I would say the last, really the last three years, uh, at least since, you know, I've been here for four and a half going on five years, but really from 2020 to 2023 going into 2024, um, we've had a lot of curveballs in the way of different processes, in the way of different, um, you know, kind of, yeah, just a lot of work I mean, yeah. thrown on a small staff. Yeah. Um, I have I have a friend, and the way he describes it as, like, how you should work is you should always have the ability to flex. So mm-hmm. you, on a daily basis, you should have probably, like, you know, 75% of your workload packed. You got to do it. Whatever. It could be lower. Um, whatever you're comfortable with. But you got to have that 25% flex because stuff comes up every day. And... Um, the last couple of years, there just hasn't been any room for flex. I well, I'll speak for myself, but it, certainly um, watching others that are dealing with similar issues, it's it, we lost the ability to flex, so we can't be as responsive. We can't cover things as comprehensively as we would like. 
Um, and for those of us that are kind of type A, it's a really hard place to be in because you either need to be working, you know, 24 hours a day or things just aren't going to get done like you want them to. Um, so that's been really hard the last the last few years, I think. That's been a huge challenge for folks that have small staffs like, like River Partners or PNWA where um, you lose the ability to flex and to be responsive and adaptable. It really is. Uh, it's, it's a tremendous challenge. And I think that it's probably, I believe it's been shared on the podcast before, so, uh, you know, hopefully I'm not uh, unveiling anything new there, especially because I'm kind of speaking a little bit on Kurt's behalf. But, you know, at one point we had kind of this attitude of like, okay, if we can just get through this this next thing, then we'll be in the clear. And now I think it's more of a, you know, okay, we're going to get through this one. And then, you know, what's the next thing going to be? Because it's, it's almost like you might get, two months tops mm-hmm. <laughs> where there's a break but then something new will come along and so uh, you have to really as you said maintain constant flexibility yeah the last um over the you know i've been engaged in some capacity um it was a lot lower before but has increased over the last several years but um since we're talking about the snake river issues you know that used to be an issue that would ebb and flow. I mean, we'd have some on years and we've had off years. And that's an issue where it's just a sustained on year. There's no off time with that issue. Um, And so um, that's one where we've lost our ability to totally flex because it requires a lot of energy and focus um, and rightfully so. But And so I I guess one question that I do have is, uh, you know, as you mentioned, kind of the being in the interim role and trying to kind of maintain that consistency, you know, help us uh, continue moving forward, keep the momentum up while providing an opportunity for us to kind of, you know, find that next person to be in that permanent role. Um, Do you have any other maybe goals in mind that you're you're thinking of while you're going to be here? You know, I've thought a bit about that, and uh, Kurt and I talked a little bit about that yesterday, trying to understand what the priorities of folks are just for the near term. Um, I think the next few months will be really important in terms of the mediation, and so my goal is to really make sure that I... um, that I'm talking with the members and board about their priorities for the mediation. So understanding that utility component better um, and working with, we have so many good, we have, you know, you guys have established a really good working team here. And so um, leaning on those folks too to help me, um, but making sure we're setting a really good course so that when the next person comes in, um, we've set them up for success. Yeah, and you know, the the thing that's so challenging to, to kind of touch on the mediation as well. There's obviously a large component of that that at the time of recording, you know, we still have a lot of confidentiality around it, you know, what we can say, what we can't say. Also, um, you know, as I was uh, kind of thinking about it this morning with regards to a totally different conversation, it's like there's what you, you can't say. <laughs> and there's also kind of what you can't say about what you can't say because it's like if you start talking about things that maybe you know aren't going on well that implies what may actually be going on so there's that challenge but then I think there's also the challenge of I think as of where we are right now 
there's still a lot of unknown in terms of kind of, <laughs> you know, where we'll end up and when, um, you know, there may be some of the, the information people could see in like our, our press statements and things, which are all, you know, publicly available as always. But um, as far as kind of where we actually see this ultimately landing, still a lot of unpredictability to navigate through there. Yeah, I agree. I think the biggest um, the biggest challenge that we've had and that we continue to have is that we've been pretty locked out of the process. So um, that's pro- a process-oriented statement, so I think we're okay with it. But, I believe um, so. <laughs> we, we've, um, we, we just haven't gotten a seat at the table, no matter how hard we've tried, and um, that's been universal for pretty much all the defendant interveners. Um, and so... It's been frustrating. It's been <laughs> sad. I mean, it's sad. Like, I know that sounds kind of silly, but it's it's as, you know, even like U.S. citizens, constituents of Oregon and Washington, um, the process has been really um, disappointing. And I, I don't think that we've been shy about that, whether it's been um, the River Partners statements that we've made or the joint statements that we've made between us, PNWA, and also PPC. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been it's been a real challenge. And to think now, I guess we've been in this for almost a year and a half. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of crazy. Like that, that time has, time always flies by, it feels like when it comes to the work that we do. But especially with that issue, it's it's sometimes hard to believe that we're we're still here at this point. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like when you're in it on the day to day, you're like, oh my god, I feel like we've been doing this for so long. Mm-hmm. And to speak to the previous point, we talked about the workload issue. It's like, okay, how long are we going to be have to be at this level? Um, but then you look back and it's been a year and a half, and you're like, okay, it's kind of now that we're here, we're like, gosh darn, we're we're still here, but um, yeah. I don't have much to say about that. It's been frustrating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the the only thing I, I will add is, uh, you know, the we have kind of a an end date mm-hmm. in mind at this point. Um, whether or not that happens, I mean, not to call into question the you know the point in the process we're at and everything, but um, more or less, I think because it's been on for so long now, it's sometimes kind of hard to believe like is it really going to be you know is that really going to be like the you know definitive point yeah. in which we're done or you know where do we end up but I think to your point the work doesn't end at the end date of the process necessarily and so there is a lot to do to kind of make sure that you know whoever's coming in next year is going to be able to really jump into this and feel like they can you know confidently approach such a a challenging issue that has been going on for a year and a half yeah yeah you're right it's i feel like you know we we have the december 15th deadline looming um so just a few more weeks and we'll know a little bit more but we we've been in this spot before we're like okay the stands in a couple weeks and we'll know what's happening and then the stay can the, the can is kicked a little bit so um sounds like december 15th is pretty solid but We'll see when we get closer. Yeah, for sure. Um, one question that I have, and you know, I understand it's um, you know being it's your your second day here, but at the same time, you know, you do have the the experience 
coming into this as well. Uh, just in terms of like what you think might be helpful to the next permanent executive director here, um, you know, is there anything broadly you might say you would you know recommend? Um, maybe things they could focus on or things they could bring to the table to kind of help with elevating the organization and you know continuing our mission forward. Yeah, my I think getting out to your members is one of the biggest things you can do as an executive director or like a new executive director. Um, when I was at PNWA, that was my initial goal, and then sneaker for issues kind of hit, and it did get derailed a little bit. But I do think um, I was lucky because I had a lot of experience with them before, so I knew most of our members. But as someone coming in new, I think understanding your members, getting out to see them and their projects and the things that they're working on and the people that they work with, uh, creating that solid foundation up front will really reap benefits down the line. So, And it will help you tell the story better. It will help you with your messaging. Um, and you know, the better you understand what you're working on, um, the better advocate and uh, voice you can be for that issue and, and those people. There's going to be a, a lot of people for them to meet, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. They'll be doing it for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As far as um, maybe going back to, you know, more looking at you, what do you think is next for you kind of once you're done with this interim role here? I mean, do you think you'll want to kind of stay on top of the particular Snake River Dam issue, or do you think you'll kind of broaden your horizons as far as maybe where you'll be looking at? Yeah, I think um, maybe a little bit of both. It's a hard issue to leave. Like, it was a very challenging issue the last few years, but it did feel like um, like we were such a tight-knit community working on it, so um, I feel like I was kind of in this club, and then um, now in River Partners, I get to continue being in the club, but um I know I'll be tracking it in some capacity. So I do have a couple of other clients that I work with. And so um, one of them is really engaged on this issue from the navigation and transportation side. And um, I imagine I'll, I'll still be in kind of this world. Um, I don't, I, I did hang my own shingle, but um, I'm, I'm only doing that um, kind of in conjunction with a couple of other projects. So I'm really excited that I get to find projects that I want to work on and people that I really enjoy working with. Um, I feel really lucky that um, I'm able to be like selective in, in what I pick out there. Um, so I think I'll, I'll definitely be staying in the, you know, ports, maritime, water type industries. If there's one thing I think that uh, we could certainly say for going through a lot of the the challenges of these last few years, it is that, you know, there's a, there's kind of a wealth of experience and knowledge that you gain from, from being in it that I think does, you know, put you in a particular position where, uh, you know, not only is it hard to kind of not be engaged in some way, because, you know, we end up working so closely with it, but, you know, there also is something to be said for kind of having that experience to bring to the table, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, you get a lot of experience, but you know how we talked about how it's kind of a nuanced issue. Um, I think you get uh, you get sort of this fire within you to want to tell, you know, the true story about things um, and help people understand the issue better. Um, so yeah, it would be a hard issue for me to leave, but yeah, yeah. Speaking 
kind of along those lines. Um, and I think luckily, you know, for you, uh, as some of our guests don't have, you've had a little bit of fair warning that this would be coming. But um, that doesn't mean I'm going to have a good day. <laughs> but we are winding down here. And so the, the thing I always like to ask everybody is to kind of, you know, close out the episode with a little bit of life advice just to get to kind of understand maybe what, what drives you or what makes you who you are. Yeah, I think what I've really been focusing on is a little bit what we talked about already is kind of, you know, being empathetic and leading with kindness. These issues get really challenging and contentious, um, but when you are leading in a way that you feel good about and you're treating other people with respect and kindness and trying to put yourself in their position, I think you're really able to offer a better perspective and represent your groups in a more well-rounded and thoughtful manner. And so I would just say, um, you know, even if you're dealing with a challenging issue um, or you're having a, you know, a difficult time at work, try to lead with kindness. It always seems to make the situation better. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you one bonus question on that note. Is there, uh, is there anything that comes to mind for you as far as maybe some strategies for, you know, if you find yourself, if you find yourself being challenged on that, like, is there something that helps you with uh, returning to empathy and kindness? Um, yeah, I can be a little reaction. Like I can, in my own self, you know, I can feel my blood pressure rise just like anybody else. Certainly. Um, so, you know, going for a walk, having some deep breaths, um, just trying to gain perspective back on you know what your end goal is staying focused on on your end goal I used to have like a little sticker on my computer that would that said keep your eye on the prize uh, because it really just would in those moments where I was really frustrated um, I'd just be like okay this is where we're trying to get to and um, maintain your composure and we can get there absolutely well I really appreciate that and uh, I hope for anyone listening that, you know, you can find whatever that is. Uh, maybe it's a walk or a sticker or, or whatever. But uh, yeah, it's definitely important for not only us being in, in the positions we're in, but also for uh, all the people who listen to this podcast that in some way or another have an interest in hydropower, which means that they probably, at least with their friends or family or um, writing letters in when we're asking people to do that kind of stuff, uh, that they're always holding their composure and being empathetic and and kind about the issue and, you know, anything else as well, obviously. Yeah, and know that you have friends that are working on the same issues. You're not alone, and we're all trying to do good work. Yeah, we're here for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And as people keep listening, they can find out how to get in touch with their friends as well. So, yeah, people always, uh, for people that don't stick around to the very end of the episode, they're missing out on all kinds of info. So make sure to do that. But. On behalf of myself and, uh, I guess, the River Partners staff, uh, we're really excited to have you on board. I think our, a lot of our members are really excited. And, uh, yeah, we're going to be, you know, continuing on with a, a really, you know, important time for this organization, for Hydropower as a whole. And um, we're definitely in good hands. So excited well, to have you. you here. I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Austin. As you just heard, both Northwest River Partners and the Dam Podcast remain in good hands. And rest assured, we're continuing full speed ahead towards our ambitious goals to advocate and educate. 
Now, we're very excited to have Heather on board, and while we've worked very closely with her on these issues for years now, as you heard, I hope all of you enjoy getting to actually hear from her today. If you didn't stick around to the end of our last episode saying goodbye, or maybe you didn't listen at all, first let me just say... Shame. Joking aside, though, thanks for listening all of the way through to the end of this one, because... Now I can remind you that this is our final episode of the year 2023. I already have some great guests scheduled, and we're going to be busy during this holiday season recording new episodes so that we can start right back up in January of 2024. But in the meantime, on behalf of myself and all of us here at Northwest River Partners, we wish you nothing but the best this Thanksgiving, and we hope that your holiday season is merry and bright. And don't forget to irritate your friends, family, and even those furry friends that you have at home that you probably talk to when you're by yourself, that everything from their turkey dinner to the light display that it give Clark Griswold a run for his money are in fact possible thanks to the miracle of hydropower. I'm sure they're going to appreciate it. Now, of course, when you inevitably all wind up on your phones at some point, that would be a great time to see what we're up to on social media. Follow us at NW River Partners on Facebook, Instagram, X, YouTube, and LinkedIn. During these next few weeks, we'll actually be uploading our entire archive of podcasts to YouTube, and moving forward, new episodes will be available there as well. So if you're a little bit behind, that's a great time for you to catch up. As always, you can get in direct contact with us at nwriverpartners.org, fill out our contact form with whatever you'd like to share, and we'll happily get in touch. You can also send emails directly to info at nwriverpartners.org. Last but not least, please kindly leave us a five-star review on your favorite listening platform, and don't forget to turn on notifications so you don't miss future episodes, which normally would arrive every other Friday, but in this case, won't be back until the first week of January. Now, with that, I'm out of here, so until I talk to you again in 2024, see ya.